If you would, take your Bible and open to Judges chapter 4. So we are continuing our, our study. Tonight we do uh, Deborah and Barak. Uh, or Barak, it depends on kind of where you put the emphasis. I may say it four different ways tonight, but I'll try to be as consistent as I, as I possibly can. If you got one of the half-sheet fancy notes as you came in, before we get started, let me point you to the bottom of that note sheet on the front side. Uh, next week, we won't have any meal or anything happening on campus uh, because of spring break week. We have mission trips out. We have families out. So we won't have anything here. If you're around, take advantage of that. Invite people to your house. Spend time together. Go out to eat. Um, but we won't be here. The next week is our Holy Week prayer service. So there, w- there won't be a meal, um, and there won't be child care, but we will gather for probably about 30 to 40 minutes specifically to pray through Holy Week and praying about Easter, praying for the Maundy Thursday service the next day. Um, so don't see prayer service and say, oh, well, I just won't come. Come, bring, bring your kids, come and be a part of this. We won't stay a long time but it will be a purposeful time to gather and pray, uh, preparing our hearts for Easter, asking God to move, to move in our church. And so that will happen on the 28th. If you're relatively new to Emmaus or you didn't participate in this last year, on Thursday of Holy Week, so March 29th, the main building will be open from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., and it's set up for you to be able to come and walk through a series of stations that represent the main events of Holy Week. There's a little guidebook you'll get. It'll take you through the different stations. There'll be scripture to read, things to pray about and reflect on. And it's a really powerful opportunity for worship. You can come b- before work, come during your lunch break. It takes, you can take as long or short really as you want. Most people it takes about 20 minutes. Some people stay for an hour. Some people race through quicker. Uh, but you've got about that much time. A lot of people come after school, after work, and, and come and be a part of that. But we also need people to volunteer. So if you have a couple of hours that you could give on that Thursday just to point people in the right direction, uh, help refill the bowl at the hand-washing station, help refill the Lord's Supper elements, if you could help out with that, let myself or Jim, or Katie in the office know, because we need some people to be able to, to fill spots for us um, on, on that Thursday. So that's, that's coming up, and it, it's, a really, it's a really neat opportunity, good chance to invite people. If you're at work, bring people with you at lunch, it'll be a really meaningful, meaningful experience. Um, and then in April, we'll get right back into our study uh, with, with judges, so. Okay. Contrary to popular belief, I'm not preaching tonight about being another man's husband, even though I said that four times on Sunday morning. Unbelievably, I said that four times and didn't catch myself one single time. Though every one of you caught me and told me about it afterwards, so I appreciate that, that I slipped up about that. Thanks for being so kind and gentle about that, but uh, unbelievable. I just... You would think that something would trigger you in your brain, or I would look out and see somebody's face, and they would be 
you guys look at me strangely anyway, so maybe it just didn't. Oh, man, just mortifying, so embarrassing. Uh, I wasn't trying to be culturally relevant. I just said the wrong thing four different times, uh, and I apologize for that. I want to do better than that, but goodness, it was embarrassing. Okay, here we go, Judges 4. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagayim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. Verse, verse 6, she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. So we're in verse 11 at this point. Verse 11 is a strange parenthesis. It's not going to look like it fits. You're just going to have to wait. Now Heber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zananim, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Harasheth Hagayim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. Verse 15. And the Lord routed Sisera. Very important language there. Not Barak routed Sisera, but and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harasheth Hagayim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. Verse 17. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. You'll find out that's a scary phrase for a lady to tell you. Um, so he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. Should have been her fir his first sign, but... And he said to her, please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. 
And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a uh, tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep with weariness. So he died. Verse 22. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin the king of Canaan before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin the king of Canaan until they destroyed Jabin king of Canaan. And once again, the pattern holds that these stories are good for eighth grade boys. So that is the one thing we have learned from Judges over and over again that, oh my word, what kind of stories do you do you get in this book? Going back to the note sheet, um, working through this a little bit, making sure we have an understanding of the setting of the story because where it takes place is important for the story. So far, the judges have primarily worked in the southern part and the western part of the land. Purposefully, this chapter moves us to the northern part of the land. Now, the map may be too light. Uh, but we're going to try to show you uh, a map here. Let's see, David, pull it a little bit so we're getting a little more of the map. Yeah, keep going, keep going, keep going. Okay, now let us see more to the north. Okay, this little red dot, if your eyes are feeling good. So this body of water right here in the middle where the little hand is, the hand icon, that's the Sea of Galilee. You have the Mediterranean Sea over here. You have the Jordan River that runs right through here. That little red dot there is Hazor. Hazor is famous in archaeology because I think, if I've got this correct, it is the largest archaeological site in Israel, just in terms of area that's been excavated and worked on. There is a ton of material that has been learned about ancient civilizations by, by working there at Hazor. So you have a lot of that going on. So you go back in your Bible, looking, keep, the, keep the map up there, uh, David. So we're back in verse 2. The Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Okay, so north of the Sea of Galilee, you have where, you have where uh, Jabin is, is reigning. Then in the middle, or the end of two, the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagayim. Okay, best we can tell, that's going to be right over in here. So modern-day Haifa, this little part of Israel that sticks out into the Mediterranean Sea, and you come southeast from that, and you get down in this area, that's going to be where Sisera was located. So Jabin ruled kind of up in the north. And he had one of his main generals down here to the southwest, right here running northwest to southeast, cutting right through there, is what's often called the Jezreel Valley. Um, you start to read through the book and you hear about Megiddo, start to put things together about Armageddon. Uh, you go there and the Israeli uh, Air Force will use that for landing some of their planes, and the planes land, they go along, then they go underground, and conspiracy theorists lose their mind at that point because you're in the, you know, this valley, and these planes are going underground and right there. Also over here, 
back this direction is where Mount Carmel, Carmel Mountain National Park is right there. So you're going to have Mount Carmel located right there on the western side south of modern-day Haifa. So what you have here in verse 2 is you have a Canaanite king who, and we'll talk about him more. He's up in the north. You have Sisera who has the army down there to the southwest. Uh, now you go down to verse 4. We have Deborah. She's judging Israel. Verse 5, she's sitting under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel. We're not going to worry about seeing these, but they're a lot further south. <laughs> they're down here in the baptistry. Uh, it's going to be it's further south that you get down to Bethel. You're, you're, at that point, you're kind of more down the Jericho area, Bethlehem area. You're getting, getting further south on, on the map. Now, verse, verse 6, she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali. Scholars have a lot of debate, dispute about exactly where this particular location is. Most likely, it's right here on the uh, west side of the Sea of Galilee, but that's, that's not well, well established. What is important, though, is what Deborah tells him in verse 6. She says, middle of verse 6, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. So we do know where Naphtali is. I mean, I, no, I'm sorry, we do know where Mount Tabor is, and it's just east of Nazareth right here. So it's going to be right in this location. You have a valley that runs right here. You have Mount Carmel here, Mount Tabor here, and you've got this valley that runs right in in between. This is where it starts to get really interesting, and this is the reason all this matters that, that God's given us here. Verse 7, she says, I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon. All right, without me even telling you, most likely where is the river Kishon located? It's in that valley, yeah. So now you have to remember, it looks weird. It looks like the river is going uphill. Rivers can run north because you can go downhill going north, so don't, don't panic. The river starts out here, and it goes down, and it ends this direction. So you have a river and by river, let's be really clear, we're talking stream. <laughs> we're talking most of the year dry, more of the year jump over it with a good running leap. Not, not, a, major, not a major stream at all, but, but it, it runs right through that valley. And so Deborah tells him, get your troops, go down there. Sisera's going to come in from the west. You're going to come in from the east, and you're going to meet there in that valley right there along the river uh, Kishon. That's what we have going on. Who are the characters? So we're kind of moving to the second part on, on the notes here. Who are these characters? Well, we just talked about how Sisera is the commander of Jabin. Most likely, Jabin is a title like Pharaoh. So Jabin's probably not his name because we find other people with this title in the Old Testament and they come one after another, so it's probably not his name. It's probably given as kind of an overarching title. He was over several areas in Canaan, and so it's a pretty high title. That's why he has these generals in different areas over different parts of the army. And so Sisera is the commander of, of Jabin's, not the commander of Jabin, but the commander of Jabin's army. Deborah, 
we don't know a lot about her background, but we do know that, that she is a prophetess. Uh, women are going to play key roles in, in Judges chapter 4, which follows, if you were with us last week, it follows this pattern of God using unlikely people. Over and over throughout Judges, you see this pattern of God uses the people that seem most unlikely to be, to be used. And so Deborah, as a female, serving as a judge would have been a surprising choice for the people at that time. You know, why, why would God choose to use her? In fact, if you, if you skip down to verse 9, after Barak hesitates, and we'll talk about it in just a second, but in verse 9, Deborah says, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Now, if you stopped in verse 9, you would think Deborah was that woman. You would think, I'm gonna, it's going to be Deborah. It's actually not even Deborah. There's another lady who is even more likely that comes in later in the story, and she becomes the one who gets the credit for, for taking down Sisera. So it's just what it looks like. Barak, who should be the one out in front leading the charge, gets taken down by two women uh, in the story separately. He's made, he's made to show that you didn't really have it all together. And so it continues this theme of God using, for people of that time, it would have seemed very unlikely that, that he would have used that. The character Deborah is sometimes used by people who would argue for women serving as pastors or women serving as elders in churches. Um, specifically, she's said to be a prophetess. And there's nothing in scripture that says that women will not be used to speak the word of God. The role of pastor and elder is different based on 1 Timothy 12, where it says that men are going to serve in that role. But Joel 2, Paul's work in 1 Corinthians, women are constantly used by God to speak his word. Um, and so nothing about this is surprising when you look at the scope of Scripture. Um, to use Deborah and say, therefore, women should serve as pastors, I don't think those two fit together. To say Deborah was used by God to speak his word and to do his work, Therefore, other women will do that. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's what you see, see all, all throughout the Bible happening. And so you have Deborah. Um, Deborah's, this is kind of funny. This is a little, you've got to really work to find it funny, but a little Hebrew uh, wordplay humor. Deborah's husband, up in verse 4. So Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, or Lapidoth, uh, Lapidot is a word that means torches, um, so you think of a torch, and her husband had the name for, for a torch. Um, Barak, who's the next person on here, Barak's name means lightning. <laughs> so Deborah somehow is attracted to these people, torches and lightning uh, are for some reason associated with Deborah. I'm not sure why, I don't know if the Hebrew writer was trying to make some sort of wordplay there, but Barak's name means lightning, and he's the one that God is calling out to say, go and, and do this, do the work. Now, his name meaning lightning is actually going to be very important here, here in just a few minutes, but, but that's his name. Uh, <laughs> and then Jael, uh, Jael, the hammerer, she is the hammerer. I mean, she's, she's putting that peg uh, through that guy's, that guy's temple. Why is she able to do that? The reason she's able to do that is because in that culture, women had the role of 
taking up and setting out the tents. So when they went from place to place, that was a job handled by the women. Um, fill it in with whatever joke you would like, and they all probably are, are going to fit. But when it came to making the house, the ladies that were the ones who did the work. This is not the first time that Jael has ever picked up a mallet and, and a peg. She's, she's done this a time or two. She's an expert at this. She knows how to do this, and so she, she gets, the, gets the job done. Okay, so what's the plot of this story? What are we supposed to draw out from the story? We've already mentioned this, but you have an unlikely judge, you have an unlikely deliverer, and you have an unlikely heroine. All, everybody in this story who God uses seems unlikely or uncooperative or struggling, hesitating in some way, which tells you again and again and again, you don't have it you don't have to have it all together for God to work through your life. And God does his best work when he works in unlikely situations and in unlikely people. Uh, when we think God should use us, we're probably in the least best position for God to do that. God does his work. He works in unlikely ways through unlikely people. And, and so Judges continues with that theme. The second thing is that it's a God-given victory. Uh, we pointed this out just for a second earlier, but in verse 15 of chapter 4, it says the Lord routed Sisera. Not for a second do you think that Barak gets the credit, or Jael gets the credit, or Deborah gets the credit. It's the Lord that gets the victory. If you turn your little piece of paper over, you're reminded of the David and Goliath story from 1 Samuel 17. Where he says, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. Who does it? It's the Lord. And I will strike you down and cut off your head. That all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's. And he will give you into our hand. Good thing to remember in life. The battle is the Lord's. He is the one who's in control. He is the one who gives the victory. We make our plans. He directs our steps. He is the one who is in control. He's the one who gives the victory. So you see this uh, clearly. Now the question is, in verse 15, it says the Lord routed Sisera. How does he do that? What happens that the Lord routes Sisera? End of verse 15 in chapter 4. The Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots, all his army, before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harasheth Hagayim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. What happens? Okay, chapter 5. We'll talk about chapter 5 a little bit more in a second. But turn over to, to chapter 5, verse 4. So chapter 5, verse 4, this, this psalm that Deborah and Barak sing. Verse 4, Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. Okay, so you have that idea going on. Then you go down to verse 20 of chapter 5. From heaven... The stars fought. From their courses, they fought against Sisera. Verse 21 is key here. The torrent Kishan swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishan, 
March on my soul with might. Okay, I'm going to ask a question that's very simple, but it's just kind of a rhetorical purpose. Small little stream, valley, huge rainstorm up top. What happens? Flash flood. Major flash flood. You get a little stream, a bunch of water falling really quickly, flowing downhill. It's amazing what water can do in, in those type of situations. Where did Deborah tell him to come from? She said, come from Mount Tabor, head down toward the river. Sisera's going to come down and meet you down there at the river. What's Sisera driving? What is he known for? She's chariots that nobody could defeat, these chariots. You couldn't. What happens to chariots when they find themselves in a floodplain where it's just rain and you're stuck in the mud? Your chariots that were so powerful and so good before, they're not going anywhere now. Because you have a flash flood, then you have a floodplain, and now you're bringing 900 chariots in there, and you just cause chaos for your army. They thought they could win based on these chariots. There's a flood that comes, rain that comes. Their, their weapons are wiped out. Chaos happens. Barak moves in with his troops, and, and the victory comes. What was Barak's name? What does it mean? Lightning. <laughs> um, God uses a storm, probably some lightning and thunder involved. Um, and, and the Canaanite, this may be playing into it as well. The Canaanite God, Baal, was sometimes known as the God of thunder. So there's a maybe something going on in the story as well where the God of Israel is, is almost mocking them. I'm going to use lightning. You think you have thunder on your side. Here comes a storm, it actually defeats you in, in the process. So there seems to be some of that, some of that imagery all, all tying together here. Which, you get to point C under plot. You also have Barak's hesitation of faith. God has this incredible plan worked out. Deborah tells him, in verse, uh, middle of verse 6, Deborah tells him, go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali. Verse 7, I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops. I will give him into your hand. You would hope, Barak would say, I don't know how this is going to work. I'm probably going to get destroyed by those chariots. What am I going to do? You would hope he would say, well, I'm going to go for it. What does he say, though, in verse 8? If you will go with me, I will go but if you will not go with me, I will not go. Do you think that's the answer Deborah was looking for at that point? Not a chance. Uh, not a chance. He's, he's hesitating here. He's, he's, not, he's not going for it. One of the commentators had a, had a nice quote about this that I put in your notes there. Barak's faith was a cautious, qualified one at first. But when the command to go came a second time, he did not hesitate. Would it have been better for him to act the first time? Yeah, absolutely. But God is gracious to him, um, and he gives him another opportunity to respond, and he responds. Okay, just kind of thinking through. You don't have to, we don't have to name too many. Think about Old Testament characters who were asked to do something, hesitated, but ultimately God still use them. 
Somebody say Moses? Yeah. Okay, so Moses is, is right at the top of the list. Jonah? Yeah, Jonah. Definitely at the top of the list. Gideon. Yeah. Gideon's important because you get to Gideon just a couple of chapters later. What were you saying, Miss Catherine? Yeah, yeah, the, the initial hesitation there. Abraham and Sarah, Sarai, uh, where her laughter, but the Lord still still uses uses her. This is a little bit of a theme in the Old Testament. Jeremiah uh, at, thought he was too young. The Lord's not going to use me. He uses him. So you have these examples in the Old Testament. God asks someone to act. They don't act. He gives them another opportunity, and, and he still uses them. He doesn't just discard them after the first time they say no. Would it have been better to say yes the first time? Absolutely. The Old Testament, though, the Old Testament is, well, the whole Bible is just full of this realism. <laughs> Oftentimes, you and I are hesitant as well. The Lord asks you to do something, gives you an opportunity, calls you to do something, you say no, you realize, oh, I should have done that. And God's gracious, and he comes back and he offers another opportunity. Really quickly, I think we have, uh, yeah, we have time for this probably. Uh, turn over to uh, Matthew 21 in the New Testament. Matthew 21, Jesus has a parable about this. It's called the parable of the two sons. So it's Matthew 21, verse 28. Matthew 21, 28. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. When he went to the other son and said the same, he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. So who does Jesus commend? The person who says I'll do it and doesn't do it? No. <laughs> he says the one who hesitates but then actually goes and does it, that's the one who, who got it right. That same idea is connected to the story here in Judges chapter 4, this idea of hesitation but then taking action. The next part there on, uh, on your notes, point D under plot, we get to the story of jail choosing the side of victory. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this, other than the fact that she seems to function as a Rahab, Ruth, and even more than that, she, she strikes me almost like an Esther figure because she's a woman who at a particular time God uses to be able to save many of his people through her action. Um, she's part of the people of God, but she's in a different area. She tricks, we already know from the previous chapter, a lot of these judges were tricky. Um, she tricks this guy into coming in. She takes action, and because of her bravery, uh, sometimes commentators will debate whether or not her action was, a, was appropriate. What do you want her to do? You know, let the, let the guy wake up? She says, no, I'm going to take action here. I'm going to do what, what I need to do for such a time as this. I'm going to take action, and in doing this, 
she knows where the Lord is victorious, and she says, I'm going to get involved there. Whatever it takes, I'm going to be on the side of, of victory. What follows in chapter 5 is, is a song. When you see Judges chapter 5, connect in your mind Exodus 15. Exodus 15 is really the first psalm in the Bible. After the people come through the Red Sea, after God brings them out of Egypt, you have this incredible psalm that, that results from that. Following deliverance, following God rescuing his people, you have these psalms that are giving. Uh, we, we have a whole book, the psalms, that are these psalms of thanksgiving for, for God's victory. Uh, you have psalms that show up in other places. You have the famous uh, Hannah's psalm, New Testament, you have Mary's song. When God works, people sing. When God delivers his people, there's a quote there in your notes that singing is a natural and proper response to deliverance. When God saves you, when God works in your life, it is natural and proper that you would want to exalt him, that you would want to praise him, that you would want to express, even if it doesn't sound great, that you would say, I just want to give everything I have to, to the Lord. Uh, and, and we do this when we gather together. You do this when you're going down the road and you say, God, thank you for your work in my life. And you're giving him, giving him praise for that. One of the verses I put on the back of, of your note sheet is what Lance Lane quoted when he was here with Hope is Alive a couple of weeks. It's Psalm chapter 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Let me show you one surprising thing that shows up in this psalm, and then, and then we'll wrap up. Okay, so down in verse 12 of chapter 5. Awake. Awake, Deborah, awake, break out. So this is chapter 5, verse 12. Break out in a song. Arise, Barak, lead away your captives. Then down marched the remnant of the noble. The people of the Lord marched down for me against the mighty. For Ephraim, their root, they marched down into the valley, following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. But then you skip down to verse 15, the middle of it. Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Verse 16. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben there were great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. Zebulun, though, is a people who risked their lives to the death. To the death. Naphtali, too, on the heights of the field. There are a couple of places in in this song, where a particular emphasis is placed on the people who took action. Barak hesitated, then took action. Jael, she most certainly took action. The people who came to be involved in the battle, they took action. God was at work. His grace was involved. He was the one who was going to win the battle, but he wanted the people to get involved. Which always makes me think of this famous quote from Teddy Roosevelt, that Teddy Roosevelt is no great theologian, nor a commentator on the book of Judges. But he does have this quote that, that's, that's pretty, pretty fascinating, and it ties in with what we're talking about. It's the famous man in the arena quote. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, 
whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there's no effort without error and shortcoming. But who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who knew neither victory nor defeat. We know from the book of James that we're required to have great faith, but it's not a faith that sits to the side passively. It's a faith that gets to work. God says, have faith in me. I'll send the storm at the right time. I can sink 900 chariots. That's not hard. You get to work. You get to work. You do what I've called you to do. By faith, do the things that I've called you to do. And so I I like the way that these stories from Judges uh, remind us of that in a fresh way. All right, let me pray for us and we'll we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you again for how we see the gospel at work uh, in the book of Judges. Stories that we read and kind of scratch our heads wondering what's going on there, but we see your hand at work. We see how you work among your people. God, thank you that you use those who would be most unlikely to be used. Uh, Most of the times, we're the ones hesitating. Uh, We're the ones who kick ourselves because we should have said something, we should have done something, but we didn't. We should have acted in a particular way, um, but God, you give us those opportunities. You're gracious and merciful to us, and so we're reminded of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians that we'll study this Sunday about. It's your grace at work in us. We, he worked harder than everyone else, but it wasn't him working. It was you at work in his life, and so God, we want to work hard. As a church, we're not going to set aside passively. We're not going to sit back and Think about what could have been done or should have been done. God, we want to we act. We want to act based on faith in you. Not for our own glory, knowing you're the one who gives the victory. But God, we want to be people who are obedient, who are responding to what you're calling us to do. So God, give us the courage and wisdom to do that. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.